Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open at uh, Romans chapter 8. And, well, there really was only one title to give this message. From groaning to glory. It couldn't really be anything else. We're going to consider a truth this evening which in a single phrase completely destroys a particular heresy which you will find being sounded forth quite loudly and defiantly in certain quarters of the Christian community. The claim is made that in increasing degrees you should find that your life is progressing from victory to victory over all of the ills of this world so that in every facet of your life you are seeing only an increase in success and achievement and accomplishment. Your struggles are becoming fewer in number, decreasing in frequency and intensity until you reach the stage where you're virtually struggling no more and you're just now coasting to heaven. In a single phrase, the Apostle Paul obliterates such claims with a truth that he repeats many times and which was clearly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing we need to do this evening is make it clear what we've read in Romans isn't a blip. It's not an aberration. It's not something that maybe on this one occasion Paul got wrong. It's taught again and again and again. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. One of the marks of a Christian, one of the characteristics of a Christian, one of the certainties of being a Christian, one of the expectations of a Christian is that being a child of God will bring suffering to your door. And note that Paul speaks of suffering with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. To suffer with Christ to suffer because of Christ, to suffer for the sake of Christ, to partake of the sufferings which he himself suffered. It means all of those things. And some may say, if you're suffering, the chances are it's because you don't have enough faith. But the Bible says, if you have faith, expect to suffer. If you're a Christian, you're now swimming upstream against the world, against your own sinful flesh, as we've already seen, and against all that Satan would do to try and bring to your way things which will discourage you, cause you to stumble, and if he got his way, to cause you to give up completely. And all of that, on top of all of the regular trials and afflictions that everyone faces because we live in a fallen and sinful world. And so the first thing that we need to be convinced about and to see and understand is the certainty of suffering. What did Jesus say 
in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In our morning series, when we get to chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, we'll hear Jesus say these words, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as, harmless as doves, but beware of men, they will deliver you up to councils, they will scourge you in their synagogues, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And remember this, says Jesus, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. John chapter 15, the words of Jesus again, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. No wonder Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. And Paul speaks frequently of the sufferings which he endured and which he, he simply accepted as part of being a Christian man and an apostle of Christ. Uh, look ahead in, in Romans chapter 8, if you have it open in front of you, to verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, peril, sword? It's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And notice it says, in all these things. It's not in escaping from these things that Christ makes you more than a conqueror. It's not by moving on from these things. It's not by being elevated above these things that you are more than a conqueror. No, it's in these things. Enduring through these things that you are more than conquerors in Christ. Because Christ will prove his strength within you. Now, let me just show you a few more places where this is taught because we need to be clear that this isn't, a, this isn't just a, a strange little doctrine that's just tucked away to the side somewhere. This is center stage in the teaching of the apostles. In Philippians 1 from verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you it's a proof of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then in chapter 3 of Philippians, what things were gained to me? These I've counted loss for Christ. And some of you know these words really well. I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. What kind of conviction is this? that Paul has regarding the gospel of Christ Jesus. Do you have it? And do I? All the things that were gained to me, says Paul, all the things which in my unconverted state I valued and treasured and esteemed and deemed worthy and of necessity and chased after, I've counted all of those things as loss for the excellence of one, knowing Christ, and two, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. And so he writes to the Thessalonians that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, appointed to it. When he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, You've carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love. Oh, it sounds really great and positive so far. Perseverance, wonderful. Persecutions, afflictions, the like of which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. The persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when Paul speaks of the Lord delivering him, it wasn't a deliverance never to be persecuted again. It was deliverance till the next time, and the next time, and the next time. But the previous persecution only served to strengthen him in the faith for the next one. And so Peter can say in his first epistle, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer you take it patiently? This is commendable 
before God. For to this you were called. You've been appointed to suffer. You've been called to suffer because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. So you see, this phrase in Romans 8, 17, if indeed we suffer with him, if indeed you suffer with him, we can speak with confidence about that phrase because the truth that it, that it contains, it's repeated and it's affirmed multiple times throughout the New Testament scriptures. Now, of course, the nature of the suffering that you may endure, the degree of the suffering that you may endure, well, that can vary considerably. It can vary considerably for you throughout your life. It can vary considerably for this Christian compared to this Christian. But suffering for the sake of Christ is in part what makes that narrow path so difficult once you enter it through the narrow gate that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. What you have to remember is that God works all of these things for the advancement of the gospel and for your spiritual good and growth. Paul rejoiced over the opportunities for the gospel that his imprisonment brought about. The whole palace guard have now heard about Christ because of my chains. Philippians chapter 1. And James can write to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And the reason they were scattered is because they were fleeing persecution. Greetings, my brethren, count it all joy. Joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. This enduring through trials is part and parcel of growing as a Christian. Peter says the same thing in, in uh, the opening verses of his first epistle. And our hearts are rejoicing shortly as in Romans 8, we start reading there at verse 14 and, and it's all sounding so wonderful, isn't it? You're led by the Spirit of God. You're a son of God. You can now cry out to him, Abba, Father, the Spirit convincing you that you're a child of God and an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And then there's this little phrase, if indeed you suffer with him. The certainty of suffering. And Christian brothers and sisters, the Bible could not make it any clearer than it does that you will have and you will know groanings for the cause of Christ in your life. But he will take you from groanings to glory. And even in the groaning, Paul and James tell us, even in the groaning, it's still possible to rejoice. Now, one very important final comment about verse 17 as it leads into verse 18. That final phrase of verse 17, that we may also be glorified together. 
Now, as we saw last week, this being glorified, well, we're being called to, to look forward to our eternal inheritance. And that inheritance is contingent upon the sinner having been saved by grace, having been born again, having believed in Christ, having received him as Saviour and Lord, and thereby having become a child of God, just as we're told in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. But this phrase, that we may also be glorified together, is not only about being an heir. It's also stated regarding our suffering with Christ. Christians are heirs of God. Christians are joint heirs with Christ that we may also be glorified together. But we must also suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Because to this you are appointed. Because for this you have been called. You must keep this in view. Because, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And Paul brings us, secondly, a contrast to grasp. Really important that we understand this the way Paul had come to understand it. Let's think about it this way. Someone comes to you with a rather bizarre proposition. The proposition is this. You spend one year in Walton Prison and I will give you a thousand pounds. And you say, what, do I look stupid? Okay. Spend one year in Walton Prison and I'll give you a hundred thousand pounds. Not even close. But it's gone from do I look stupid to not even close. Okay. One year in prison for a million pounds. Now, you might find you pause slightly before answering. Hmm. Hmm. Now the odds aren't quite so crazy. But you might think, no, you're still not close. The answer's still no. Okay. One year in Walton Prison. One hundred million pounds is yours. What's the food like in Walton Prison? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with that which awaits us. What is this when I know that is waiting for me at the end? And that's the whole point of what Paul is saying here. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, and again at its close, we're given a little glimpse into something about that glory. It's like Christ opens the door of heaven just a smidgen and permits us a brief glimpse in. And even that brief glimpse is breathtaking in its majesty 
and in its holiness. You find John trying to find the words to describe what he's seen. So much so that John says, as soon as it dawns on him who and what he is looking at, he falls down like a dead man. This was an apostle who'd spent the best part of three years with Jesus, spent long days and hours with him. But what's changed? Well, he'd only ever seen Christ with the glory of his deity veiled so that physically, visibly, all that people really saw was Christ's humanity. That's all they were permitted to see. Sometimes people saw more than that. As we were reminded this morning, even the demons knew he was more than that. But his glory is veiled for the most part in his earthly ministry. Three of the disciples got to see things a little differently on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a glimpse. But John sees Christ now with all of his deity unveiled in heaven, on full display. He still retains all of his humanity, as we were reminded on Wednesday. But, but to actually see everything about the glory of Christ in his deity, just like Isaiah does when confronted with such a vision, they fall down on their faces. And the degree and the extent and the magnificence of that glory far surpasses anything that you might experience in this life. As much as any man or woman can be transformed into the likeness of Christ, you will be that man and that woman in your glorified state. As much as anyone can now live in sinless and and perfect union and fellowship with God. In heaven, you will. That's what Paul is, is thinking about when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He says, this is part of our daily testimony. Uh, how you respond when afflictions come. Your children are watching you. The world is watching you. When all of these trials come upon you, the Lord is watching you. And Paul continues, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Our outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And this light affliction, light affliction. And have another read of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a reminder of what Paul is calling a light affliction. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory Paul can see and understand this great contrast between what now is and what will be. The greater the suffering, how much greater the glory appears. 
We don't look at the things which are seen. We look at the things that are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So if you focus upon and gaze upon and fixate upon your sufferings and afflictions and only occasionally glance forward and upward, well, you'll always be struggling. That needs to be switched around so that you only glance at your sufferings and your gaze and your focus is on what is yet to be. If you were in Walton Prison for a year with a hundred million waiting in your bank account, you'd just spend every day thinking about the hundred million, wouldn't you? Or you wouldn't be there. How much more that which we have in Christ? How much more that eternal glory that awaits us with Christ? That's the contrast to grasp. It changed everything for Paul. It'll change everything for you. Changes everything for me. The glory to come. Because, thirdly, the groaning will give way to glory. It will. The earnest expectation waits for the revealing of the sons of God, verse 19. Because there's glory coming. There's glory coming. The glory which will be revealed in us at the end of verse 18. Our sin which brought about the fall, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, resulted in the ruin of all of the created world. The curse God placed upon this world in Genesis 3. You can turn to it and have a look. Before he sinned, Adam didn't have to contend with weeds in his garden, but now he does. If she had not sinned, Eve would have been laughing and singing and joking through every delivery of every child. But she never did that once, because as many of you ladies know, it is agony. In a world without sin, the animal kingdom would not be divided into the hunter and the prey. And animals would not rip each other to shreds. In a world without sin, there would be no natural disasters of storm and flood and drought and fire and earthquake and tsunami and disease and all of the miseries and death that they produce. And Paul uses a literary device called personification in verses 19 through to 22. And he speaks of this fallen creation, this whole fallen world, as if it were a person. The whole of creation is groaning to be released from this pain and affliction, which is the curse that came at the fall in Genesis 3. It's like, it's like being in perpetual labour pains, waiting for the baby to be born and then the pain will be over but does so expectantly because the day is coming when it shall be. It's been subjected under the curse to all, of, to all of this. But as is mentioned in the curse, one day 
the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And that is the hope at the end of verse 20. All of creation has been subjected to futility. This is the curse that all of creation is under. And that was what God did. God declared this curse. But within the curse, there is hope. Because God knows how he is going to deal with this situation. God knows how he's going to rectify this situation. God knows how he's going to restore this situation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan can only nibble at Christ's heel, but Christ will crush Satan's head and all will be restored one day. All things shall be made new and be restored at Christ's return. Paul speaks of the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19. That's Christians like you and me, raised and renewed in our resurrection bodies, being taken into glory, presented faultless by Christ. For now, just like creation is groaning under the weight of sin, we too groan. Verse 23, even we ourselves, we groan within ourselves awaiting that adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. One day our bodies will be redeemed. We'll be finally and completely set free from sin and that will give way to glory. And this certain hope, that's part of your salvation from the very beginning. We were saved in this hope. This end to which we were moving was always the end in God's eternal plans and purposes. This was always the fulfilment of our salvation. John's vision of Christ and heaven and glory in Revelation, that was always what God had in view for his people. You were saved in this hope, in that this is part of the gospel message. This is gospel truth. Not to perish, but to have everlasting life, which is God's free gift of grace for you. When I was a boy, and even into uh, my teenage years, I was in Boys Brigade. And in Boys Brigade, we had a motto text. We had to learn it. The first thing we had to do was learn the motto text. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And our little badge was an anchor, and it said sure and steadfast on the badge. What kind of hope can be an anchor for your soul? Because for many people, hope sounds like something quite flimsy. Who wants a flimsy anchor? Because when the Bible speaks about hope, you see, it speaks simply about something which is absolutely certain, but which is not yet. But it most certainly shall be. This hope, an anchor for your soul. Does your soul have an anchor? Does your soul need an anchor? 
It does. You know it does. This hope in the gospel of Christ, an anchor for your soul, sure and steadfast. Now you already have the first fruits of it by the means of God's Spirit. Verse 23, the first fruits you have, all that God has already done in you, the Spirit now within you, that great sanctifying work of the Spirit within you, that it's already begun. God is already working as one now justified in Christ. But everything that is yet to be, it's all assured, it's all guaranteed. And now eagerly you wait for the rest of your salvation to be brought to its completion in Christ when he comes. And so we hope for it with endurance and with eager expectation because we know it's coming. And so you press on through the trials, through the afflictions, through the persecutions. Why? Because you know that which lies ahead, which is guaranteed. And because the trials and the afflictions and the persecutions grow smaller as the size of the prize increases in your understanding. You hold something very small close to your eye and look at something really big in the distance. This little thing near your eye looks bigger than the thing in the distance. But start walking towards the mountain with the pea held here. And as you start walking, the pea looks a lot bigger than the mountain in the distance. But the closer you get to the mountain, the pea starts to fall into its proper perspective against the mountain. And the closer you get and the more clearly you see the mountain and the size and the extent of it, this pea, which seems so big, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you're stood at the foot of the mountain and you're looking up and in your hand there's this tiny little pea. That's you, with Paul, with your heart and your mind fixed on the glory to come. That's how and why Paul can speak of a light affliction. Because he weighs this against that. There's no comparison. It's not a contest. And that's why he talks about here the great certainty that we have, the eager expectation, the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're saved in this hope. And so we persevere. The things which can cause you to groan can seem overwhelming. But keep looking forward and keep looking up. Where Christ is now seated... And the groaning starts to give way to glory, even in this life, as you realise all that you have in Christ. And one day Christ will come again, the author of your salvation will complete it. The groaning will be gone, it will be gone completely, it will be gone forever. Your groaning will be gone, the groaning of the creation will be gone, because all things will be made new. And all will only be glory forever. 
We wait in hope, but the day is coming when we shall see. The day is coming when there'll be no more need for hope because you'll have the reality of it. And the best part of the reality is that you will be, you'll be with God himself for all eternity. And sin will be no more. You'll never groan again. Such is God's promise to those who are his children, to those who are his heirs. When all my labours and trials are o'er, there awaits only glory for me.